Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Brentford Bible Chapel. Today, we're going to start wrapping up our series of the Kings by looking at King Josiah. Turn with me, please, to 2 Chronicles 34. While you're turning there, I want to shout out this disclaimer. I apologize. Uh, typically, we like to pre-record these things, uh, these messages, so that there's less technical uh, issues with uploading in Facebook and uh well, I was sick last night, so we're doing this live. So please pray that uh, technology works as it should. Um, the people in the background here are working really hard, so let's pray that uh, it goes well. If not, you can watch the recording afterwards, and those problems should be resolved. So Second Chronicles chapter 34. Before we begin, let's open a word of prayer. Oh Lord our God, we give you thanks for another opportunity to look into your word. We pray that as we... Consider uh, the stories that we're about to read, that they would be practical to our everyday life now, that we will learn um, from the things that they did well and learn from the things that they did poorly, that we would not make the same mistakes, but that we would also duplicate the things that they did well. Oh Lord, please give me fluency of speech, fluency of thought, and may everything that is said and done this morning be glorifying to your name. We give you praise and we give you thanks in your son's name. Amen. Second Chronicles chapter 34. Josiah. Josiah was eight years old when he became king and reigned in Jerusalem for 31 years. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. Well, right off the bat, there should be something that shocked you. Josiah was made king at eight years old. What? Eight years old? How could that be? How could an eight-year-old boy become a king? Well, you see, what we looked at last week uh, with Phil Belcher is we looked at Josiah's grandfather. Josiah's grandfather, uh, he mentioned that he, Manasseh, was a benchmark for evil. Benchmark for evil. Josiah is the opposite. I like to say he's a benchmark of a righteous life. Someone who did a great job living for the Lord. Now, in between those two is his father, his father Amon. Now, we didn't actually spend a week studying Amon. And the reason being is that it's only four verses long or so in the Bible that's recorded about him. Uh, Amon uh, became king. He was king for less than two years. Uh, because he did so evil in the sight of the Lord that his officials, the people working under him, assassinated him. They removed him from office and killed him. And that's where we pick up now with Josiah. Josiah's father is killed, and he's made king at the age of eight. Now, could you just imagine what Josiah's life is now like? The trauma that he has experienced, his father being killed in his own house. And now being placed in charge of a kingdom. That, that, that has got to be seriously traumatizing. That your own father's not gone because his own people killed him. And now you're in charge. The decisions you got to make, the emotions that you're dealing with. I, I, it would be hard for even me now being an adult to have to deal with a situation like that. And imagine an eight-year-old boy. And you know what? Never in scripture, nowhere here, do we see that he took vengeance for his father. He did not retaliate against the people that killed his father. We see that he lived a life, as we just read, that was pleasing and right in the eyes of the Lord. You see, when traumatic times come, you can do one of two things. You can turn away from the Lord, or you can turn towards the Lord. And I got a little example of that. Uh, Abraham Lincoln and Charles Darwin, didn't know this was shared in these past week, but Abraham Lincoln and Charles Darwin were both, both born the same day. Did not know that. It was interesting. And both of them also lost their mom when they were young. When those two boys were young, they both lost their mom. Abraham Lincoln and Charles Darwin. They also lost one of their own children when their children were young. Both of them have experienced great loss in their life. Both of them have experienced a lot of trauma. But when you look at their lives, they're very different. We know Charles, yeah, he went on and 
proclaimed to be an atheist, turned away from God, and all that had to do with a great creator. Abraham, on the other hand, he went up, sorry, he went on and faithfully declared that there is a God of the universe and faithfully followed his God the best that he could and was not ashamed of it. Both people experienced the same life, but both of them came out with different ends of the spectrum when you're considering faith. Today in your life, when you have traumatic experiences, when you have great loss, great struggles, chaos, where do you turn to? Do you have anger towards God? Do you blame God? Do you hate God for what's going on in your life? Or do you run to God in those times? See, Josiah did not turn against God. He did not hate God. He did not blame God. He ran towards God. What a great example. What a great example of a young boy following after the ways of his father David. Let's look at what else we can read about Josiah here. Verse 2. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And walked in the ways of his father David, not turning aside or to the right or to the left. See, he never got distracted. Now, I don't know about you, but about me, uh, when I'm driving, I sometimes get distracted. I, 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 I ADD. I'm looking around, seeing what's going on, especially at Christmas time. See, when I'm driving down the street at Christmas time, we like to go for family rides in the evening and look at all the Christmas lights. I like Christmas lights, okay? Now... When we're driving down the side streets looking at Christmas lights, I'm like, whoa, look at that one. And, and, I, and as I'm driving, what, what, what do you notice? Usually my wife's like, Brian, 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 get back. I'm like, because I, where I look is where the car goes. When I look to the right, even though I, I, I'm supposed to be going straight, my body turns with me. Where my eyes point, the car goes. I don't know if you've experienced that, but I know I've definitely experienced that. That when I get distracted and look at something, the car tends to drift in that way. In our own Christian lives, we can get distracted. And if we get distracted too much, like driving, you can get to accidents. All right. There have been a few times, and I'm not proud of this, but I've gone over like I've gone over to median or I've gone over to yellow white lines. I've hit those little grooves on the side of the road that wake me back up to get back in track. But if I get distracted too much, eventually it ends in a, a crash. In our own Christian lives, in our own walk it is possible to get distracted what do you mean brian how do i get distracted well let me give you some examples let me give you some examples first are you distracted by earthly possessions by money look at your borrowing habits look at your credit card habits do you buy things that you cannot afford are you in your Amazon shopping cart every day? When the UPS driver pulls up to your house, do you know him by name? You might be, if that's the case, you might be distracted by possessions, gaining, getting stuff for yourself. What will make you happy? And you know what? That can cause an accident in your life. Money, financial stability, we know that borrowing too much money can lead to an accident in your life. Well, we also know that with technology, computers, the things that we look at, the things that we post, the things that we say, that can be a huge distraction. How much time you're on there, the things that you're saying, the things that you're reading, the things that you're looking at, listen, they can damage your reputation. They can damage your relationships with other people. That Those things can get you distracted. They can get your life off course. How about your relationships with other people? Are you at all unequally yoked in your walk? For us believers, we know that we are not to marry other unbelievers. We should not go be business partners with unbelievers. We should not even be best friends necessarily. It is okay to be friends. Obviously, we, we are to be in the world and love the world. But we know that typically, when a believer and an unbeliever partner up in, in some way, shape, or form, 
and decisions had to be made, it is usually not the worldly person who all of a sudden puts on good morals and makes good decisions. It is typically the Christian that will bend to the world's ways. How about your desire for power, status, or success? Are those things that drive you? Because we know that those things are not found to be biblical, not found to be uh, godly. Um, because when you're striving for success and power and, 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 and status, a lot of times people find themselves not spending time with their families, not spending time with their loved ones and investing in the younger lives under them that they should be in. You're, you're neglecting your families at times. Uh, how about your hobbies and your own forms of entertainment? Do you spend more time desiring to do your hobbies or researching your own hobbies and forms of entertainment uh, than focusing on the kingdom of God? Those things are distractions in your life. Now listen, all of these things do not take away your salvation. They do not make you become a non-Christian. They can't take you out of the kingdom of God. But we do know that those things can derail you, take you off course of the walk that God has called you to walk. And they can cause accidents. Some of them will cause minor fender benders. You have a hurt relationship. It can be repaired. But sometimes you'll get to such a bad accident that it's a total train wreck. Christians, fellow believers in the Lord, do not get distracted. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who endured the cross, scorning the shame, is now set down at the right hand of God. Listen, guys. Look at Jesus. Focus on him. Every morning when you wake up, Lord, what do you want me to do? Where would you have me to go? What would you have me to say? When your eyes are on Jesus, you don't get distracted. When my eyes are on the road in front of me, not talking to my wife, not looking at my phone, not looking at the Christmas lights on the side road, guess what? When I'm looking ahead, the car's going straight where it's supposed to be, on the road, and we're safe. It's when I get distracted that I get into an accident. When you get distracted in your Christian walk, that's when things go wrong. Believers, do not get distracted. Hebrews 9, 28 says this, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear a second time without sin unto salvation. Do you look for Jesus? Do you look unto your Savior? For when he returns, he's bringing salvation with him. Let's keep reading. Now that we've got two verses down out of two chapters. All right. Second Chronicles 34, verse 3. In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, so he's about 16 years old now, he began to seek the God of his father David. In the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherah poles, and carved idols and cast images. Under his direction, the altars of the Baals were turned down. He cut into pieces the incense altars that were above them and smashed the Asherah poles and the idols and images. He broke to pieces and scattered over the graves of those who were sacrificing to them. He burned the bones of the priests on their altars, and he purged Judah and Jerusalem. In the towns of Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, as far as Naphtali, and in the ruins around them, he tore down the altars and the asher poles and crushed the idols to powder and to cut to pieces all the incense altars throughout Jerusalem. Then he went back to Jerusalem. So Josiah here, at age 16, age 18 and a little older, begins going on a crusade, a crusade for the Lord and purging the nation, cleaning out all that is ungodly, getting rid of all the idols. Now, something that you may have missed when we read through that was that at this time, see Judah being the two southern tribes are still around. The 10 northern tribes of Israel at this time, what's happened to them? They've already been overthrown and conquered by the Assyrians. Wiped out. God pronounced judgment on them because of their evil ways. They did not repent. So Assyria came in 
and God used them to pronounce judgment on his own people. So the northern tribes of Israel do not belong to themselves anymore. They're actually under Assyrian rule right now. But when we look at this in verse 6, he went into the towns of Manasseh and Ephraim, which is actually not Judah. It's actually not his land. He walks up north into the northern tribes, which are now under enemy rule. He went 50 miles up into enemy territory and began purging those lands also. Because Josiah recognized that, wait a minute, Judah is not just God's people. It's all of Israel that is God's people. And all of Israel, he knows that the ten tribes, they've been judged by God. And he went in to clean it up. He was willing to go on a limb into enemy territory to clean it up. That's, that's bold. 18 years old, that's bold. That's being a strong leader. In verse 8, we see that he uh, gets some men together and asks them to repair the temple, to restore order of worship there. He goes to the high priest, uh, Hilkiah, and Hilkiah starts to put together the temple and repair all that was messed up there. Let's read in verse 9. They went to Hilkiah, the high priest, and gave him the money that had been brought into the temple of God which the Levites, who were the doorkeepers, had collected from the people of Manasseh and Ephraim, and the entire remnant of Israel, again, the ten northern tribes. All right, He's bringing them back together. From all the people of Judah and Benjamin, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, they, they, they entrusted it to the men and appointed them to supervise the work of the Lord's temple. These men paid the workers who repaired and restored the temple, they also gave money to the carpenters and to the builders to purchase stone dressings and for timber and joists and beams for the buildings that the kings of Judah had allowed to fall to ruin. Hilkiah the high priest is put in charge of overseeing the temple, restoring it, rebuilding it, and fixing it up. Because we obviously know that when his father and his grandfather were in charge, again, there are benchmarks for evil. The temple went to ruins. It was used for all kinds of evil practices. It was messed up. Idols were brought into it. And the place was a wreck. It was a wreck. It was neglected. So Josiah puts back to order the way things should be in a temple. And it cost him a lot of money. It cost him a lot of manpower uh, to fix it. And Hokiah the high priest is put in charge of doing this. So order and worship is restored. Uh, here's a, a really cool part of Josiah's life here. Ready? Verse 14. So we're talking about Hokiah and the workers in the temple still, right? Verse 14. While they were bringing out the money that had been taken into the temple of the Lord, Hokiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord that had been given through Moses. Wait a minute, you're saying the Jewish scriptures, the, the Torah, the, 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 the Jewish Bible of the time was lost for decades. And the high priest himself, it appears during his entire service, and did not even know where it was. That's, that's some bad times right there. They found the scriptures. Let me challenge you right now. Can you tell me exactly right now where your Bible is? Where's your sword? Can you say, I, it's exactly, it's on my bedside tabletop. Or actually, I know where it is. It's in my go bag. It's in my church go bag. See, our family, my kids each have their own bags that they bring to church. They have the little crayons and coloring stuff in it. And uh, my wife and I have a bag um, that we always bring. And it's always by the front door. So when things are crazy on Sunday mornings, I don't have to think too hard. I know where everything is. We just grab it and go. Is your Bible in that bag? Because it's still in the bag from the last time we went to church last Sunday. Because it hasn't moved in seven days. Listen, two things here. One, if you don't know where your Bible is, uh, you're not much better than these people here. You should be able to instantly be able to place your hand on the Bible. Because you've been on it lately. You were in it yesterday. You were in it this morning. You should know where your, your scriptures are. 
know where your sword is. If you guys go searching the house for it and tearing the place apart to find it, that might be an indication of your problem. Also, maybe you know exactly where your Bible is, but it hasn't moved in seven days because you haven't been in church. Or maybe it hasn't moved in two months because you haven't gone to church in two months. That's a problem too. Don't be like these people here who for decades lost their Bibles. Lost the scriptures of the Lord. So this is great. They found it. Wonderful day. Hilkiah said to Stephen, the secretary in verse 15, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. And he gave it to Stephen. And Stephen took the book to the king and reported to him, Your officials are doing everything that has been committed to them. They have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the supervisors in the working. Then Stephen, the secretary, informed the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Stephen read the, from it in the presence of the king. Now here's cool. This was even better. Ready? Not only did they find the scriptures, they didn't just find them and put them down. No, no. They read them. And the king sat down and listened to them while they were read. Verse 19. When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his robes. Man. Why would you tear your robes? Because you're reading your Bible. You're reading the scriptures. He gave orders to Hilkiah, Uglim, and Sephon, Abinan, son of Micah, Sephon, the secretary of Isaiah, the king's attendant. Go inquire of the Lord for me and for the remnant of Israel and for Judah about what is written in his book. Because great is the Lord's anger that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written in it. See, I love Josiah right now. He's not just reading the words on his page. He's actually trying to understand them. He's actually trying to contemplate them. He's actually trying to really think about them. I wonder what it was that he read. Well, we do know that in Scripture, maybe turn with me right now to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 30. In, in the Scriptures that Moses wrote, all right, throughout their time traveling through the wilderness, God made many promises of great blessings to the nation of Israel. If you follow me, if you do not go after other idols and false gods, if you follow me with all of your heart, I will bless you more than anyone could ever imagine. But there are also curses, consequences. If you don't follow me, if you go after the other ways of the world, if you intermarry with other nations, if you commit adultery with me, there will be consequences. Maybe Josiah happened to be reading through Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Let's start in verse 15. Just a chance, maybe you come across this. Deuteronomy 30, verse 15. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. God's talking to Josiah here possibly, saying, listen, you got a decision to make. Today you have a decision to make. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commands, decrees the laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away, and if you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away and bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live in the land you are crossing into Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live, that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life, and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to his fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'd be willing to bet that if Josiah came across a section like that in Scripture, 
very possibly even this very section here, that he gave him a wake-up call. I bet you he understood quickly that, wait a minute, my brothers to the north did exactly what God asked them not to do. Exactly the opposite of the things God did. They were idolaters. They were adulterers towards God. They followed many other gods and did many evil things in his sight. And what did God do? He wiped them out. He brought judgment on them by Assyria. And I'd be willing to bet that Josiah is looking back on, hmm, my dad did not do a great job. And when I look into history at my grandfather, he did not do a great job either. He did a lot of evil things. Because again, he was a benchmark for evil. I'd be willing to bet that the Holy Spirit right now is convicting Josiah to think that, hmm, I wonder if God's upset with us. Actually, you know what? I think he is upset with us. He's definitely upset with us. We've done a lot of evil. And if God's word is true, and if God is not a liar, and if we have trespassed against him, which we certainly have, then the curses that happen to our brothers in the north are going to happen to us too. God is going to wipe us out. God is going to bring judgment in. And he has this moment of great fear. And, and rightfully so. And rightfully so. Back to Second Chronicles. He has great fear because of the Lord's anger. Because they did not follow the things that were written in the book. Let's keep reading and see what happens. Now I'll tell you uh, in the next few verses that Josiah asked the high priest to go inquire of the Lord to see what he would have him to do. Because obviously Josiah is under great stress. Because he feels that judgment is coming. And you know what? He's actually right. Because less than 23 years after Josiah passes away, God brings in Babylon and pronounces judgment on his people. So I'd be willing to bet that God was almost ready at this very point right now to, to take care of his people, to bring judgment in. And Josiah is very fearful of that, and rightfully so. So what does he do? So he sends, he sends Hilkiah out, um, and they go find a prophetess who inquires of the Lord. And she returns them, verse 23. This is what the prophetess says. She said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Tell the man who sent you to me. This is what the Lord says. I am going to bring disaster on this place and its people. All the curses written in this book that has been read in the presence of the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and burned incense to the other gods and provoked me to anger by all that their hands have made. My anger will be poured out on this place, and it will not be quenched. Oh, that's not great news. I have to go back to the king right now and tell him that God is going to judge this land, and his anger will not be quenched. Does not sound like good news at all. But get this. Tell the king of Judah, who sent you to me, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the words you heard. Because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before God when you heard what, was, what he spoke against his place and his people, and because you humbled yourself before me and tore your robes and wept in my presence, I have heard you, declares the Lord. I will now gather you to your fathers, and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I am going to bring on this place and on those who live here. Wow. God says, you know what? I will hold off my judgment. I will show mercy to you, Josiah, and to the people you're under your reign. I will bring judgment, but not while you're alive. Why did God do that? Why did God do that? Because we saw last week with Phil that, man, the people did some 
seriously evil, gross things. And if I were God, I would have just right then and there taken care of the deal. Ended it. But God right now is showing great mercy. I, I cannot help but see the parallel in Scripture here to the gospel message to us today. See, there is a time coming, and it's not too far away, when God will pronounce judgment on this very earth, still to come. God will deal with sin. And we know that it is appointed once unto man to die, and then the judgment. Do you know that when your life is over, you will stand before God, and you yourself will be judged. And God is telling you today, through the scriptures, through his word, that listen, disaster is coming for you. Disaster is coming for you. And you will burn in hell because of your evil deeds. But if you would only listen to me, humble yourself before me, and hear what I have done for you, I will spare you. You see, this is why Jesus came. The whole reason why Jesus came was to share with the world the good news that, listen, if you believe in me, Jesus said, believe that I died on the cross for you, believe that I rose again in power, that if you believe in me, the consequences of your sins would not be put upon you. That God the Father will share mercy and grace upon you and will not bring destruction upon you when your life is over. He will spare you. Why? Because he did not spare me. The Father took out his wrath for your sin on his Son. And if you would only humble yourself and acknowledge before God that he is right and that you have sinned and that you need a Savior, that the coming wrath would not fall on you but you would live eternally in heaven. Would you recognize that today? Like Josiah humbled himself before the Lord, would you today humble yourself before the Lord and say, listen, I've messed up. I need you, Lord. I need you to save me. That's exactly what Josiah did. And what was the Lord's response? The Lord says, I have heard you. God is listening. He hears you. And when you humble yourself before you, he will not turn his back on you. That's not his nature. He will respond and he will save you if you would only humble yourself before him. Wow, we need to keep moving. We still got a whole other chapter to go. All right. So we're not going to have time to keep reading through 2 Chronicles chapter 34, but I'll tell you what happens. Josiah is greatly uh, blessed, greatly joyed, and he does not take this responsibility lightly that God has uh, said that I will, you know, pass over this time. So he says, listen, nation, that's it. Everybody together, we're going to do this right. If God is going to temporarily pardon the nation and let us live in peace, then we're going to do this right. And he cleans up the nation. He puts back together order and status in the temple. And people return to worshiping the Lord. He forbids any other idol sacrifices. You may only worship the Lord your God. And the people all agree. And there's a great revival in the nation to follow the Lord. Now we get to chapter 35. Chapter 35 is a pretty cool story. Josiah celebrated the Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem. And the Passover lamb was, sat, was slaughtered on the 14th day of the first month. We know that the Passover is a pretty big deal. That's a pretty big deal. And it had not been celebrated for decades now. So he reinstitutes it. He appointed to the priests and their duties and encouraged them in the service of the Lord's temple. He said to the Levites who instructed all Israel, again, all Israel, not just Judah, but also the tribes of the north who were the remnant that remained, all Israel who had been, uh, been sac uh, sorry, and who had been consecrated to the Lord, put the sacred ark in a temple that Solomon, the son of David, had built. It is not to be carried on your shoulders. Now serve the Lord and his people Israel. Prepare yourselves 
by families in your divisions according to the directions written by David, king of Israel, and by his son Solomon. Stand in the holy place with a group of Levites for each subdivision of the families of your fellow countrymen and the lay people. Slaughter the Passover lambs. Consecrate yourselves and prepare the lambs for your fellow countrymen, doing what the Lord commanded through Moses. Now get this, ready? Josiah himself provided for all the lay people who were there a total of 30,000 sheep and goats for the Passover offerings. He also gave 3,000 cattle from his own king's possessions. The officials also contributed voluntarily to the people and the priests and the Levites. Hilkiah, Zechariah, Jael, an administrator of God's temple, gave priests 2,600 Passover offerings and 300 cattle. Also, Kananiah, along with Shemael and Nathaniel, the brothers of Hashbaniah, Jael, and Joazabad, the leaders of the Levites, provided 5,000 Passover offerings and 500 head of cattle. That's over 36,000 animals. 36,000 animals this one day were given to the Lord as a sacrifice on behalf of the people to cover their sins. That, that, that's a lot of animals. And you know what? This, this, I'm sorry if this is a little bit uh, too, not, not grotesque, but a little bit too much, but I, I couldn't help think of the amount of volume of, of, of blood that was spilled that day. Over 48,000 gallons of blood from all those animals. That is an enormous amount of blood. And what was the purpose of that blood? The purpose of all that blood was to cover over the nation's great sins. They had defiled the ways of the Lord, defiled his temple, forsaken the things that God had called them to do. We know that sins cannot be forgiven without the shedding of blood. And on this day, huge amounts of animals were sacrificed to the Lord to cover their sins. And you can go on and read in verse 15. Again, I'd like to have more time to read all of it. But in verse 15, it says this, The Passover had not been observed like this in Israel since the day of prophet Samuel. None of the kings of Israel had ever celebrated such a Passover as Josiah with the priests and the Levites and all Judah and Israel who were there with the people of Jerusalem. The Passover was celebrated in the 18th year of Josiah's reign. He was 26 years old. 26 years old, a young man. And never before in the Jewish history except for the time of Solomon, uh, sorry, Samuel, had this ever happened, such a great Passover to the Lord. I, I couldn't help but think, again, of all the sacrifice that was made to cover their sins. Because it, it, it drew me to think about the one person who sacrificed himself for me. To cover my sins. How all that blood was a temporary covering. Those thousands and thousands and ten thousand gallons of blood was a temporary covering for the people. Yet Jesus Christ himself covers all of our sins permanently. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. We gotta go look into this. We gotta read it straight for ourselves about what scripture has to say about the Lord Jesus Christ. It is, it's just too good. And I can't even say it myself. So we're just going to read, and we're going to do a little comparison here between the animals that were sacrificed on this day, one of the greatest days of Passover ever to exist, how the lamb was sacrificed to cover the people's sins for the nation, and to remember how God spared the nation when they were in Egypt. Hebrews chapter 10. The law is only a shadow of good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. 
For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all, and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. So what the author is saying here is that, listen, every year the Passover happened, years and years and years, all these animals had to be sacrificed. And never was it good enough. It wasn't enough to cover their sins forever and in the future. It was a temporary cover for the past, and their guilt was never taken away. It couldn't take their guilt away. But those sacrifices, verse 3, are an annual reminder of sins, because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It is impossible for all these animals that were sacrificed on this great day to actually remove the sins. All it did was temporarily cover them up, waiting for the day when Christ would come. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were pleased. You were not pleased. And I said, Here I am. It is written about me in a scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. Verse 10. And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You see, when Jesus Christ came, he was the perfect Passover lamb. By his body being sacrificed on the cross, what does it say? That we have been made holy once for all. Day after day, the high priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which could never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time, Again, it's talking about Jesus right now. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he awaits his enemies to be made a footstool. Because by one sacrifice, he has been made perfect forever those who are being made holy. If you put your trust in Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus not only covers your sins, like the sacrifices of the past. It removes them. See, Jesus took your sins, put them on himself. He bore God's wrath. And now you can live a guilt-free, conscience-free life, knowing that you are good before God, that you are in right standing before God, that you are justified before him. Not because you've done anything right, not because you've done anything good, not because you deserve it, not because you earned it, you're worth it, because Jesus has earned it. Because Jesus is worth it. And he imputes his righteousness. He gives you his perfection. So when God looks at you, he doesn't see you. He sees his son. And because his son is perfect, and his son is righteous, he sees you as righteous. Because of the blood that was spilt on Calvary. Turn with me to... Back one page of Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. I just want to emphasize this more. Nine, Hebrews 9, 11. When Christ came as a priest of the good things that had already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of blood of goats or calves, but entered the most holy place once for all, by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Jesus Christ did not go into the temple of Solomon with his blood to offer to God. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is Jesus Christ took his blood and entered the throne room of God in heaven and said, here is my life. I have sacrificed for these people. See, the temple down here is just a picture, a representation of, of what happened up there. See, when we take the blood uh, in the temple, when the Jews took the, when the priests took the blood in the temple and they sprinkled it before the Lord as a covering, Jesus took his own blood to heaven and said, Look, Father, here is the covering, here is the redemption, here is the atonement for the people down on earth. And if you believe in me, it's effective for you in saving your life. 
the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. But how much more than will the blood of Christ, who through eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience from the acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of the new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise, inherit eternal, sorry, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. See, Jesus Christ is our mediator. He lives every day as an intercessor for us. And when you screw up, believer, when you mess up, Jesus Christ is up in heaven and on your behalf saying, Father, I've forgiven that. Father, I paid for that. Forgive him, Lord. Forgive him, Father. That's power. There is power in the blood. Power to save your soul. And the only thing you have to do is have a heart like Josiah, who would humble yourself before God and acknowledge that you need him. Yeah, a few seconds left. Let's go look at the, the rest of Josiah's life. Well, I will paraphrase it for you because time is running short. Um, verse 20. After this, after the Passover, right, all this had happened, when Josiah had set the temple in order, Nico, king of Egypt, went up to fight against Karmasheth on Euphrates, and Josiah marched out to meet him in battle. See, here's what happened was, the king of Egypt needed to pass through Judah's land to go help out their allies. Now see, Egypt and Judah, not friends. But Egypt and Assyria were friends. And Assyria was in trouble. Uh, they needed help. So, um, the Egyptian king decided to march up to go assist them. The problem is they had to pass through Judah. And Josiah uh, chose not to give them right of passage through his territory. And, and you know what? I kind of get it. When a foreign king with all his army marches onto your land, you should go out and see what's going on. Um, especially if they're not your friends. Uh, so rightfully so, Josiah marches out to go see, hey, what's going on over here? And the king says, I'm coming through. Nico says, I am coming through. Uh, please let us pass. And Josiah says, no, you may not go through. And one of the reasons why he said that is very possibly because he knows that Assyria is the nation that wiped out his brothers to the north. Why would he want Egypt to go help the very nation that wiped out his brothers in the north? And there's a lot of other political issues that, begin, that could have been going on at the time. A lot of other reasons why Josiah stood his ground. But we do know this. Josiah did not consult the Lord. Josiah did not take a minute, like he did previously, go inquire of the Lord, Hey God, what would you have me to do here? I'm humbled before you. What would you have me to do? He doesn't, he doesn't do that at all. He doesn't ask the high priest. He doesn't go find a prophet and inquire of the Lord. He makes a decision for himself without even asking God first. And that cost him his life. He went to war and in the battle he was hit with an arrow. He was wounded. He was brought back to Jerusalem and he passed away from his injuries. And that was the end of his life. He lived to be a very young age. But we do know this, that the judgment of God that will come 23 years after, his, after this day when he died did not come while he reigned. God promised him peace. God promised him that the judgment would pass over uh, his nation during his period of time. And God fulfilled that promise. See, when God makes promises, he sticks to his word. And the nation of, of Judah lived in peace during his time. Now we'll see next week 
uh, they'll be covering three kings at one time. And I don't want to give it all away, but it doesn't go well. It doesn't go well. Josiah was the last good king. And he was a great king who followed the Lord with all his heart. He did not swerve from left to right. He did not get distracted. And when he decided to follow God, he did it with all his heart. He gave it his all. He wanted to do it right. Do you want to do your life right before God? So that when you come face to face with him, you hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I hope you desire that. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we give you thanks uh, for the life that Josiah lived as an example and a benchmark of living a righteous life. Lord, I pray that we too would live a life worthy of the calling that we have received. Because you have done so much on our behalf. May we live every day to please you. Because you are the only one worth anything that we could give. So Lord, please take our lives and use them in a mighty way. We thank you for your son and how he was the great Passover lamb. And that by his blood, we are cleansed. We are guilt-free. Our conscience can be clean before you. And we know that one day we will be with you forever in heaven. What a great day that would be. So we commit this time into your hands the rest of our week. And we give you thanks. In your son's name we pray. Amen.